Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Landon Johnson as he shares this week's message. So today's uh, message is called, Unto the Lord God Almighty, Maker of Heaven and Earth, and Unto Caesar. Um, So you recall the famous scene from Mark 12, uh, verses 12 through 17. I'll read the passage real quick just to remind you of it. Uh, And they were seeking to arrest him, they being the uh, uh, scribes and Pharisees, were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people. For they perceived that he, being Jesus, had told a parable against them. So they left him and went away. And they, again the Pharisees, sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came to him and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Nice little butter him up at the beginning. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought him one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus answered them, Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. So what they were trying to do was trick him into saying, You don't have to pay your taxes because Rome is an evil government full of heathens. And in so doing, they could then bring the Roman government to say, he's trying to cause sedition, arrest him. Jesus, being smarter than they are, obviously, found an elegant way around it that uh, taught us a very valuable lesson, which is that some things there are, are, as uh, uh, Augustine put it, the city of God and the city of man. There are, in this life, things that we have to do in terms of honoring the authorities that God has put into uh, uh, authority over us But there are certain lines that we do not cross because there are things that belong to God. So um, today, the reason that we're uh, we're going to be going through uh, something uh, very specifically, we're going to be going through the topic of biblical sexuality. And the reason is because of what's happening across our northern border in Canada. So let's uh, open with prayer real quick, and then I'll kind of explain that situation of what's going on and why we're going to be looking at what we're looking at this morning. So Heavenly Father, uh, as we come before you today, um, as I stand in your pulpit, I pray that you would just uh, uh, give me the grace that you gave to Isaiah uh, as I stand before you and declare myself unclean and unworthy to uh, declare your word, that you would take a hot coal and place it upon my tongue, uh, make my speech something that conveys truth. Whatever is falsehood, let it just fall away, but uh, allow your truth to shine through no matter how well I do, and uh, just let that, uh, let that um, good thing that goes out that is your word, let that go out and be a, a blessing to those who are able to hear this morning. I pray this in your name. Amen. So uh, in Canada, they just passed a new bill called Bill C-4, um, and we should have the text of it here. Um, but uh, uh, basically what they've done is uh, they're trying to outlaw something called conversion therapy. So this is the idea that uh, somebody is struggling with homosexual attraction or transgenderism, and they want to not struggle with that anymore. And so they seek out services to help them change from that to uh, what we would look at as a God-honoring life, uh, whether it's through uh, uh, choosing a life of celibacy or actually being able to come out of that temptation. And so this bill that was passed uh, actually makes it a criminal offense to try to help someone to do that. 
punishable potentially by time in prison. So uh, very specifically, if uh, taking, for example, this sermon right now, if we were to put an advertisement out front that we were going to have a sermon dealing with biblical sexuality so that those who are struggling with this can hear the word of God and be encouraged to come and listen and come out of that, that could carry a fine of two years in prison. If someone were to receive compensation for offering that help, whether you're a counselor or a pastor, um, that's another two years in prison. And if you are found guilty of just encouraging someone to you know, be able to come out of this. Uh, uh, if you sat down as a pastor with someone in your congregation because you wanted to teach them and help them to go through the scripture and what it teaches so that they could align themselves with what the Bible taught, uh, that's five years in prison. So for this sermon this morning, if we advertised it out front um, and I was, you know, if I was the teaching pastor receiving a wage for preaching uh, like Rob would, uh, potentially you could, as of the eighth of this month, you could receive nine years in prison simply for preaching the truth of what the Bible teaches. So our, our friends across the border in Canada have asked that this Sunday, they kind of put out a call and said, we are going to be preaching on biblical sexuality this Sunday. And we ask all of our brothers and sisters who agree with us to also do the same as a sign of solidarity, that we want to uh, uh, show that there are some things that the state is allowed to say in terms of uh, 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 putting strictures around what we can and can't do. There are some things that they cannot. And one of the things they cannot do is tell us what we preach from the pulpit and the truth of God's word. So this morning, we're going to kind of go through scripture and teach what is a balanced view of biblical sexuality and how to act well as a Christian in teaching those things. And so there's a bit of a caveat here. Uh, we want, want to make sure we're very balanced, right? Because sometimes we have the bad habit of reacting to the world instead of realigning ourselves with God. Um, which is to say sometimes we respond so strongly that we go too far in trying to push back on something. A really common example of this is uh, the divinity of Christ. Uh, people will talk about Christ being just a man, and we're like, no, he's God, and we'll like push back so hard that we forget about the fact that he was also fully man, right? He was truly man and truly God. So uh, we need to make sure we always keep balance in all the things that we do so we don't go too far. And so we have uh, uh, two good examples. Uh, ben uh, was laughing because this morning Dustin sent me uh, a little inspiration, as he called it. Uh, there's a pastor named Steven Anderson who is just, he's one of those guys that like shakes the pulpit and like jumps on top of the pulpit and spits and all the rest of it. Uh, but there's a famous little like gif clip of him where he's talking and he's standing there and he's like shaking the whole pulpit and he says, no homos will ever be allowed in my church while I'm the pastor, never. And then he like shakes the whole pulpit. Don't do that. That is too far one side. <laughs> on the other side, there's a, uh, what they call a TikTok pastor uh, named Brandon Robertson. And uh, uh, try to give it the affectation he gave it. Uh, he has a little video he put out uh, that's gotten very uh, popular. It says, you better check yourself before you wreck yourself. Because there's not a single verse in the New Testament that talks about LGBT, LGBT uh, people or our relationships. Also not true. So what we would like to demonstrate uh, here in scripture is that both of these statements are equally hateful. Neither of them reflects the love of Christ. And we as Christians want to be balanced. We want to uh, stand on the solid rock of scripture and not allow ourselves to be pulled either to one side or the other. So 
before we dive into the deep scripture, we're going to do what I call the cogs, which is that we need to stand really firmly on the truth of scripture, which means we need to have our foundation set. So you know, like a machine, there's those cogs that all turn together, and if one of them's messed up, it causes a lot of problems. So these cogs, these are uh, uh, elementary uh, aspects of theology that if we understand them and how they all work together and align, then it helps uh, us stay balanced while we try to investigate the rest of the stuff. So the four letters of cogs are creation, ownership, glory, and sovereignty. So we need to have a theology of those four categories and have that ground us in who we are in relationship to God before we move forward. So we'll start with the first one, theology of creation. And this is the question, why is there something rather than nothing? It's kind of a big question, but how often have you stopped and asked it, right? Like, pretty solid earth we stand on, look up at night, well, not here. In the rest of the world where we're not like, flooded with lights. You can look up at night and see stars. Uh, and you just wonder, like, where did all this stuff come from? Right? We live life, but why is there something rather than nothing? And for the Christian, the answer is simple. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There is something because there is someone who exists without beginning and without end. And he decided, I am going to create. And so that is why we have something. So that's our theology of creation. It exists because God said it would exist. Next is the theology of ownership. Who owns the world and all that is in it? Now, it seems like, like you know, the, there's a really easy uh, uh, Sunday school option for these, right? Where you just be like, Jesus, to all the answers. But we want to get a little bit deeper than that. So yes, of course God owns things. But think about this a little bit more deeply. Like Think about just the OVBC building. Who owns the OVBC building? Like, OK, so. There's the building, the church, right? Our church owns the building. But before that, it was an orange grove owned by a business person who donated it so that the church could be built here. Before that, it was owned by the city of Orange municipality. Before that, it was owned by the state of California in the 1800s when they made the state. Before that, it was owned by the United States government who had taken it from the Mexican government in war, who had taken it from the Spanish government in war, who had taken it from the Native Americans who lived it before that, and on and on and on and on and on. At some point, you get back to who's the person who literally owns this thing and has not just the piece of paper that transfers from person to person to person. And then thinking beyond that, who owns you? Now that's a little bit of a tricky question, right? Because immediately you say that and people think of slavery, right? Who owns you? And yes, of course, there's like slavery that goes on even now today. And obviously, in history, it existed. There was ownership of people, which we see as a grave sin. But even beyond that, there is a, uh, a point of ownership that is voluntary, right? Like, I belong to my wife. She owns me in a very real sense, where we are joined together in marriage. I have obligations to my children, right? My children, oh, I am owned to my children, and they own me as their father. And I have obligations to them that if I shirk on those, it is sin for me. My labor at work, right? You go to work, you do work for a certain wage per hour or salary or whatever, and the company owns your labor. They own that period of time where you show up and you do something for them. And whatever you produce during that period of time, that company now owns it. Right? So there's all sorts of ownership that goes on in the world. So you have to ask, who owns you? at that very deep base level. And sometimes the answer to that is not one that we like, 
but we always need to make sure we are uh, uh, looking back to Scripture first. So we're going to go to Romans 9, verses 20 through 21. So if you've got your uh, Bibles, go ahead and open them up and pop over to Romans 9 real quick. We're going to start in verse 20. As Rob likes to say, a very famous passage of Scripture, very well known. So starting in verse 20, we'll just do two verses. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? And then popping over to Romans 11, turn just a little bit to the right, and starting in verse 33, we'll read three verses. Oh, the depths and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. God owns you. God owns who you are and he has the right the, the gap between us and him is as large as the gap between clay and potter. Like in the way that it would seem nonsensical almost to say that the clay could talk back to the person shaping it and try to say what it should be is us trying to talk back to God and saying what we should be. At the end of the day, he owns us and he has the right to shape us as he sees fit. So we've got, first one was the C. Do you remember what that one was? Theology of... I'll give me some feedback here. Creation, okay. Next one. Ownership. All right, cool. We got two. Creation, ownership. Third one is glory. C-O-G, glory. So that question is, does God want us to be happy or does he want us to be holy? How does glory work in this life? So in Ephesians 5, 27, the reason that uh, uh, God sanctifies his church is so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So the church is the bride of Christ. We are being sanctified so that we might be presented to Christ as his bride. And we're doing that so that he can give us to himself with splendor and without spot or blemish. He does it to glorify himself. The ultimate end is God's glory, not ours. If you go to John chapter 12, verse 24 through 30, go ahead and turn there real quick if you've got your scriptures handy. We're going to read six verses. So John 12, starting in verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servants be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there heard it, and said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. But Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. In terms of thinking about the theology of glory, God gives glory to the things that he gives glory to because it gives glory to him. 
He is the only ultimate thing worthy of glory, and so he glorifies himself through all the choices that he makes. And then finally, we've got our last, the theology of sovereignty. So we had creation, ownership, glory, and now sovereignty. And this is the question of who is king? This one's pretty easy and straightforward. Psalm 47, 6 through 7. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our king, sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him, being Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Hebrews 1.3 He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. God is the sovereign of this entire universe. He is the sovereign of our world. He is the king of kings. And so understanding these four categories then are cogs that make sure that we understand our relationship relative to scripture, our creation, our theology of um, creation, our theology of ownership, our theology of glory, and finally our theology of sovereignty. So Knowing that we've got those kind of as our framework, let's real quick, um, a lot of times it can be easy to, what they say, like go away before you come back. So before we dive directly into the biblical sexuality thing, and I promise I'm not going to keep you here for two hours, it feels like this intro goes forever, but I just want to set a solid foundation. What if someone were to propose to you a non-Trinitarian understanding of God? Like, Jesus was just a man, yes, God exists, the Holy Spirit is just another name for God, but Jesus, he was just a good teacher, right? Not, nothing special other than being a good teacher, right? So we'd say, okay, I have the intuition that this is wrong, but I can't just like pull Bible verses out of my back pocket to say why. So let me look into this, right? I want to be a thinking person and figure out what's going on. So there's three things we can do to kind of examine and see what's up uh, anytime someone proposes something that seems off. The first one is that we want to look into scripture, right? Very first thing you want to do look at God's own word, see what he says, but also look at the history of the church. Right? We've got 2,000 years of the most brilliant minds that humanity has produced in that period engaging with scripture and thinking through it and giving us teaching on it. So uh, look at scripture, of course, as the ultimate authority, but also consider church history and say, has the church, like how have they engaged with the idea of the Trinity? since its beginning. You look at Ignatius of Antioch, you look at Clement of Rome, you look at Melito of Sardis, and you just look at the words of scripture itself, and clearly it talks about Christ as God, it talks about the Holy Spirit as God, and it talks about the Father as God. And it uses the same covenant name from the Old Testament to refer to all three of those persons. And in the Old Testament, there was no concept yet of the idea of a trinity. There were hints of it, but people hadn't, it hadn't been revealed yet in the process of revelation that God was, in fact, so filled with so much majesty that he could be three persons in one being. And so throughout the entire history of the church, there have been fights over that doctrine, but the church has been strong to always affirm from the very first that this doctrine of the trinity has existed. So, okay, strike against that uh, perspective based on that. But 
let's take a look and say, is this new view compatible with Scripture, right? We took a look at the stuff that was in Scripture. We took a look at History Church. Doesn't seem like it lines up, but let's dive in. Let's give it an honest go, right? Is it possible that we missed the true meaning of Scripture in every generation, in every culture, in every language across the entire world for two millennia in the history of the church? Seems pretty unlikely. So then we have to ask the question, what's the source of this new suggestion as our third criteria to look at it? Like, where did this come from? Did we, did we discover a new manuscript that should have been in the Bible but was somehow missing? Did we find some strong analysis of the underlying text? Someone came up with some incredible method of exegesis and suddenly we realized there was something there that we missed? Or is that source outside of scripture and suspiciously seems to align perfectly with the way that culture is tending to go and if you believed this it'd be a lot easier to get along with the milieu that you exist inside of. Chances are it's probably that last one. In the case of someone who's like a Unitarian, Unitarianism only showed up in like early 1900s because that's when it became fashionable to push stuff like that. So. Now let's look at biblical sexuality in light of those same three categories, right? So obviously defining our terms, biblical, we want to know what's in the Bible. And then sexuality related to sex. So let's look into the scripture and the history of the church. In the history of the church, how has the church dealt with what the Bible says about sexuality? And when we look into that, we find that in the entire history of the church and biblical understanding, we have never at any point up until this modern day seen marriage as defined as anything other than the heterosexual covenantal relationship of two people in marriage. There have been times where it's been distorted, right? In the Old Testament, you can find lots of examples of people with multiple wives, things like that, but it was never intended as the original design. And further, in the entire history of the church, and again, in biblical understanding, any time that homosexuality is mentioned or anything that is other than one man and one woman in the covenantal relationship of marriage, it is regarded as a grave sin. In the Old Testament, it was given the death penalty. In the New Testament, it is given the level of sin that if you do not repent of it, you are to be cast out of the church. It's not a thing that gets messed around with. So now we get to the question, is it compatible with scripture? So we're going to do a real quick survey through some of the uh, biggest verses that pop up. And we're going to start with Hebrews 13.4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. So the book of Hebrews, it's really important to understand, is all about trying to explain what in the world is going on to the Jewish audience, right? They are steeped in the Old Testament, and they understand the law deeply. And then Christ comes along and he says, I am the fulfillment of that. And then gives them more understanding of it. And a lot of those understandings that Christ taught to them are in contradiction to all of the traditions that had been built up over time by the Pharisees and the Sadducees and people like that. So Hebrews is all about trying to help a Jewish audience understand what in the world does all this stuff mean, right? So you have to understand Leviticus intimately because it was written to people to try to help them understand, you know the law. Here's how the law interfaces with grace that has come via Christ. So in the book of Hebrews, uh, there was a very clear understanding of what marriage meant, one man, one woman, and that everything outside of that was a perversion, and those perversions were to be dealt with with stoning. In this case, 
writing to that audience when he says, let the marriage bed be undefiled. And I'm going to dive a little bit into the Greek on these passages just because it's a very common practice for people to try to make justifications for how these were bad translations, so on and so forth. So the word marriage bed in the Greek is the word koite. So in English, we have coital, right? So the idea of sex, right? It's a very direct, it's a, a euphemism that's used to say the sexual relationship. Sexually immoral, right? This condemn, condemn all sexual perversions when it says God will judge the sexually immoral. The Greek word there is pornea. Get our word pornography. We know exactly what that means. This is the Greek word that is inclusive of all sexual sins. And then finally, it specifically calls out adultery, right? Adulterous. The Greek word there is moikos, which is an adulterer, someone who specifically violates a marriage. And so the, this passage says God will judge those who engage in pornea, anything that is outside of the covenantal relationship of one man and one woman in marriage, and specifically, he hates adultery because of the way that it destroys and defiles the marriage bed. So that's uh, Hebrews 1. Now jumping over into Matthew 19, verses 3 through 9. The Pharisees came up to him, him being Jesus, and by asking, they said, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the, from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. All right, so there's a debate between the scholars at the time. How do we handle divorce? Right? They're, people are not that different now than they were back then. There were unhappy marriages. People wanted to get out of them. They wanted to divorce. So there was a debate, is it legal for someone to divorce? So they come and they pose this question to Jesus because it's a very difficult and thorny question and one that they felt like didn't have a good answer. And so Jesus would be forced to alienate or make a foolish answer one way or another. So it's a modern question, effectively, in their time. It was a, a question of the day. And what does Jesus do? He answers with ancient wisdom. So God, as G Jesus, as God himself explaining to us his own word, goes back to the very, very beginning and says, do you not read? Did you not look at what the scripture says? And what does it tell us at the very, very beginning? God created them male, and he created them female. And a man is to leave his, fa his family and join to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. God says, I told you what it is. It's one man, it's one woman. It's the two brought together in a covenantal relationship. And that is all it is. Uh, you, I'm sure you've heard this metaphor before of uh, people who are trained to pick up on uh, counterfeit money. Possibilities for how you can make a counterfeit bill are literally endless. You could do almost anything. So instead of trying to teach them all the different tricks that people are constantly coming up with to try to make counterfeit money, they teach them what the original is so perfectly. They have it memorized in so much detail that the moment there's anything off, the weight of the paper, the color of the ink, anything, they immediately notice it and go, that's not real, because they know the real thing so well. Christ, being a masterful teacher, does the exact same thing here. He doesn't bother going into all of these nuances about what is and what is not, and all the possible permutations of what's allowable. He simply says, this is the rule that God gave you from the very beginning, and this is the only rule that's allowable. One man, one woman, covenantal marriage. So. There we go. Uh, and so then moving on into that verse, he says, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. It's important that we remember that this is divinely determined. 
This wasn't something that Christ just said, this is my take on this. He said, God has determined this from the very beginning, and I tell you, this is so good that when God brings these two people together and they make that covenant before him, let it not be broken. Let man not try to enter into something that God has determined and choose for himself how he would like to control it. Instead, what God has joined together, let not man separate. It's a divinely determined thing. So now we're going to jump over into 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Now we know that the law is good, and if one uses it lawfully, understand this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So again, diving a little bit into the Greek again, that for, uh, phrase sexually immoral, same word, pornea, right? Consistency across, script, across scripture. The men who practice homosexuality passage is actually a word that Paul uh, joined two separate words together. It's arsenokoitai. And so it's a conjunction of two words, arson, which is the Greek word for man, and koite, right, to lie down with, coitus, the idea of sex. So a euphemism, men lying down with other men, koite literally means to lie down with in a bed. So it's saying men lying with other men in bed, a euphemism for sexual relationships between men. So it's a very obvious, direct word. You'll hear people try to come up with all sorts of crazy ideas to try to get around this. When you get down to the original language, it is patently obvious. And a lot of the things that you hear, uh, the really common one is the word homosexual didn't show up until the 1940s when someone translated it that way and then it became this whole thing and it's never been that way in scripture. It has always been that way in scripture. The original Greek words tried to tell us men sleeping with men is sin to the point that you will be uh, prevented from going into the kingdom of heaven. Moving on from that again, uh, uh, we have now in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, there's our word pernia again, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, again called out specifically, nor men who practice homosexuality, same word, arsenokoitai, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, and you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So what's particularly interesting about that passage is it's so wide, right? Like, yes, it specifically calls out uh, homosexuality as bad, specifically sexual immorality, adultery, but also lists a bunch of other stuff. Idolatry, who of us is not guilty of idolatry? Thieving, who of us has not stolen something? Drunks, revilers, swindlers, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. This list is so wide that we and everyone else in humanity who has been alive for any period of time is gathered up within this list and says, none of you can find the kingdom of God because all of you are sinners, right? This is basic theology. But such were some of you, were some of you, and you were washed and you were sanctified and you were justified. So you are no longer those things. You once were in this category of people that practiced these sins and you were outside of the kingdom of God but God has sanctified you and now you are different and now you can be brought in. This is in direct contradiction to what that bill tries to say you can't do. Right? This is an outline that says you used to do these things. God can bring you to a point that you no longer do those things. To try to do that, to try to obey this passage of scripture 
we'll get you nine years in jail. So we have to ask the question, right? We've looked at the history of the church and of the interpretation of Scripture. Never in the history of the church or the interpretation of Scripture have they tried to make the argument that's being made now. We look at Scripture over and over. I mean, this was a quick survey of the most obvious passages. If we kept going into it, we can find tons and tons and tons of stuff dealing with the sexual relationships of life because they are so intimate and so powerful in our lives that God wants us to get them right. So we have to ask the third question. What's the source of this new suggestion, right? Where is this coming from? Did it come from some new biblical manuscript that was discovered, some new exegetical method that analyzes Scripture in a more powerful way? Of course not. It's just aligning with culture. Culture is trying to push us to do this. And so the law is trying to be shaped to align with that new understanding. So why, Landon, why? Why did you dump all of this stuff on top of us this morning? Like, I'm not going to remember all those verses. I'm not going to remember all those Greek words. What was the point of you doing all this other than to like throw a bunch of stuff out there? The point is that we want you to be able to understand and know, <laughs> that be equipped that when someone comes to you with an argument and there are people who have thought deeply on this on how to deceive you, right? That you can find all sorts of videos of people coming up with crazy arguments for why scripture has been interpreted wrong for 2,000 years and why we've been wrong for 2,000 years. The entire church in every culture and every language across the entire world has been wrong and it's only just now that we've gotten smart enough that we figured this out. People will make that argument and they will do a bunch of stuff to try to deceive you by diving into the original language and effectively lying about it. I want you to have the confidence and the foundation to know even if you don't remember all of that stuff, you can have the confidence in knowing that what you have been taught here at uh, OVBC and what the church has taught historically for 2,000 years is truth. And you can stand solid on that truth. So when someone tries to push back then in love and with patience, you can say, that's really interesting. I don't necessarily have an answer for that right now, but I'd love to talk, chat with you about it maybe in a week so I get some time to go you know, research it. And then come talk to me, come talk to Randy, come talk to Rob, we'll equip you. And you can then go back, have a good conversation with them, and hopefully guide that person back to a point where they too can see the truth. So there's that. But then knowing the truth, we can respond in love. So there's a, there's a very easy desire, and pray for our brothers and sisters in Canada. I can't imagine the temptation toward bitterness to know that your own government is fighting so hard to try to make it so that you cannot preach the truth of the gospel, how much that must bring up a desire to hate those people for doing that, for trying to crush you and using the power of the state to do that. But we need to respond in love. Right? And we can look back to our, uh, the Christians of the very, very first century who uh, endured all of the horrible things that Rome did and yet in many places responded with love and a desire to see the people around them saved, which is why they turned the world upside down with their lessons. So we remember the parable of the man who was forgiven of a mighty debt where he goes to the king and pleads, says, please forgive me of this terrible debt. You know, I, I can't pay this off. Uh, it was like 70 years worth of labor of debt that he had built up. It's like, I can never come out from underneath this. And at that time, the only way he possibly could have gotten away from it was to sell himself into slavery, which obviously is not something you want to do. And so the king offers him forgiveness, says, your debt is paid. You may go and be free. 
And then the man immediately turns around, goes to you know the friend that he knows who owes him you know seven bucks for the Big Mac that he bought for him, and is like shaking him and saying, "You owe me the money that you owe me." And the word gets back to the king that he had done that, and so he brings judgment upon that man for not forgiving the person for such a small thing after he had been been forgiven such a mighty debt. Obviously, the application is very clear to us: we cannot condemn others uh, with. Uh, uh, hatred and bitterness in our heart when we have been forgiven of the same exact sins that they're partaking in, the same things that separated us from God. We have to respond in love. But also, thinking a little bit deeper about that passage, like, that guy would have had some friend who had told him, right, like, the king will forgive, right? The king is someone who is a reasonable man, and you can make a petition to him, right? Where we can go before the king and say, this debt is too much, it is crushing me. Please forgive me. Please forgive this debt. And the king will be faithful to do so. If we then know that that proclamation has gone out and we do not proclaim that to others, right? If we have dear friends and family members who do not know the truth of Christ, who are engaged in that list of sins that we saw that encapsulates everybody, and yet we refuse to offer them the choice to go before the king, we hide it from them actively, right? This is where it gets really, really gnarly. How, how many times have we chosen, and I've done this, I know most of us have, how many times have we chosen in our own hearts there was an opportunity to tell someone the truth of Christ, and because it would have made things really awkward, we chose not to. And so that person who is now sitting under judgment and could potentially have heard that they can go before the king and receive restitution for their debt, they could have forgiveness of that, now doesn't know because we didn't tell them. We have to love the person so much that we are willing to, as the Proverbs say, uh, have uh, the wounds of a friend are faithful. We must be willing to rupture a relationship, to have them think poorly of us in order to bring them truth that will be such an incredible blessing to them. We can't let our loved ones or people that we claim to love live underneath a debt that is that heavy without telling them. So, uh, as way of encouragement, my hope is that we cannot hide this proclamation, that you can stand firm knowing that uh, the truth of the scripture is true, and also uh, just be uh, wise and expectant about what is going to happen here in the US. So we, had, uh, uh, we haven't yet gotten to the point that Canada has gotten. They're ahead of us as far as trying to push this kind of secularization, but we have our own version of this called the Do Not Harm Act that was tried to push recently, just a few months ago was put into our own Congress. I think we have the text of um, the Do Not Harm Act built into the uh, slides, should be toward the end. Um, so a little bit small to read. But uh, so this is the actual text. So this is trying to uh, specifically scale back what's called RIFRA, the Free, uh, Religious Freedom of Restoration Act, which was specifically put into place by Congress to try to protect churches and other places like that, uh, uh, Christian schools, to help them uh, continue to operate as they want to according to their conscience without having to worry about the government trying to come in and sue them out of existence. This wants to repeal that. This is trying to get passed right now. If something like this goes through, right, that uh, says that the uh, Religious Freedom Restoration Act um, should not be interpreted to authorize an exemption from generally applicable laws, and the reason is because they don't want to cause meaningful harm, including dignitary harm. Dignitary harm is like the easiest possible thing 
to prove because all you have to do is find someone that says, I feel like my dignity's been offended. <clears throat> Knowing that there's a church over there where they're preaching something that I don't like, my dignity. Ah. Like, that's, that's how easy it is. So if something like this passes, Rob could have an applicant show up to come work here who believes absolutely nothing of what we believe. In fact, they could believe things that are directly antithetical to Christianity. They could be an atheist who wants to actively destroy this church. And Rob would not be able to say no to hiring them because they're an atheist who wants to destroy the church because he no longer, we no longer have a protection that says we can choose who gets hired based upon the fact that we have convictions about what we want to teach here. They would say, eh, that's discrimination. You're actually causing dignitary harm to that person. They feel like their dignity is being assaulted, that you uh, are not hiring them because they're an atheist. So, sorry, got to hire them or be sued out of existence. Like, this is going to come at some point. So, as we pray for our friends across the border in Canada who are now having to deal with this actively, we are going to see pastors jailed in Canada because they will continue to preach faithfully and there will be people who are actively trying to target them. At some point, that is going to show up here. And it's possible, God let it be true, that we will have some kind of revival and a pushback and uh, uh, we will not see something like this, but like, it, it's probably only a matter of time given the way that culture generally is trending. So prepare yourselves now. Before something like this happens, stand on the truth of scripture, let these things soak in and be thinking and contemplating what does it look like to tell someone that you love them and what does it do, what does it look like to love someone so much that you're not only willing to rupture a relationship but you're willing to go to jail. If you tell someone that what they're partaking in is a sin so grave that they're going to end up going to hell because they don't have the love of Christ in their life, if that means you end up going to jail, are you still going to say that to that person? Do you love them that much? That's a very heavy burden to carry, and praise God, we don't have to deal with it yet. But the day is probably not far off where that will be a reality for us. It may not come in our lives, but in our children's. Unless something changes, it's very likely. So let us now center ourselves, understand the truths of Scripture. Let us pray for those who are in far worse condition than we are. Obviously, I think in Canada is very bad, but there are Christians in China and in Sudan and other places that have been dealing with something like this and worse than this for as long as history has existed. They have never had the freedoms that we had. So the hope is that we can center ourselves, stand on the truth of Scripture, remain balanced, right? Don't become Stephen Anderson and get crazy and shake your pulpit and say, we don't want any homos. But also don't become the TikTok guy and say, well, actually, it doesn't talk at all about this, and you can do whatever you want, right? There's balance to be found in the center. We can love people while we stand firm on the truth of Scripture. So with that, let me leave you with one bit of encouragement, Proverbs 28, 1 through 2. The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. When the land transgresses, it has many rulers, but with a man of understanding and knowledge, its stability will long continue. So you're feeling like our days are pretty crazy, like the country's getting whiplashed all over the place, They're like things are super unstable. Well, yeah, like we're a land that is deep in transgression. So it makes sense that we would have that kind of stuff. But we as the righteous need to stand bold as lions, and we need to be stable so that even as everything else around us might be falling apart and people may be drifting without a rudder, not knowing which way to go, we can be the perfect and clear picture 
of what Christ teaches in Scripture so that when people come to us and they talk to us and they see us, there's something different, right? We can respond with love when people hate us. When someone strikes us on the left cheek, we can turn to them the other cheek also. That is something that no one else in the world does because we only do it with the power of Christ through us. So let us have that boldness. Let us have that stability. And then let us pray for our brothers and sisters across the border in Canada who are now going to have a much mightier struggle as they try to stay true to Scripture. Go ahead and bow your heads as we pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you so much for uh, just providing a clear and consistent message in your word. I know that uh, um, I was just trying to uh, offer this to uh, the congregation that uh, it's a lot of information, a lot of stuff to throw out there. I probably repeated myself a whole lot, but Lord, I just pray that you would uh, allow everyone to hold on to the things that were good, let them remember those cogs, your creation, your... um, your glory, your sovereignty. I forgot what O was. Oh, hold on. Ownership. Ah, See, this is why I have a congregation. Heavenly Father, uh, 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 thank you for a congregation who can remind me. Help us to remember our cogs, especially me, my creation, your ownership, your glory, your sovereignty, and being grounded in those things, then being able to approach your scripture well and being able to see the clear teaching that you have offered and us being able to just submit ourselves to your truth knowing that your ways are so much higher than our ways and your understanding so much far beyond ours that the gap is quite literally as big as between a lump of clay and the person who shapes it. Give us humility, Lord, before your word. Let it sink deep within our hearts and let us just be, uh, let us be stable as we stand upon the truth that you have given to us. Okay, it's on your name. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help hear the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.